BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. A year ago, something seismic happened in Bristol. You might think that what happened on the day Edward Colston's statue was brought down was an act of vandalism, a sudden eruption of anger and frustration. But that moment highlighted something stark, that the very history which Edward Colston represented, the history of Britain and slavery, feels incredibly personal to many British people, while distant to many others. I'm Yersa Daly-Ward, and I'm your guide to this story. I'm no historian. And this is not the history of British slavery. This is Descendants, the series which asks something fairly simple. How close is each of our lives to the legacy of Britain's role in slavery? And who does that mean we are connected to? Every single person's story you will hear is connected. And many of them will bring this history far closer to home than any of us could ever have imagined before. Whoever you are, wherever you are in Britain, the chances are this touches your life somewhere, somehow. Today... I'm going to introduce you to two men whose histories are connected through two of the biggest slave owners in British history, Malik and Mark. My name is Malakon Nasser. I was born in Liverpool in the 1960s. My father came from um, British Guyana, or what was then British Guyana, and my mother was Welsh. And in Britain, growing up in a, in a white working-class neighbourhood, I was constantly being told to go back to where you came from without actually knowing really where that was. I was thinking, you know, Warwick Street in Toxteth, where I was born. What do they mean, go back to where you came from? Toxteth, Liverpool, in the 1980s, 150 years after the abolition of slavery. Well, why should Toxteth be the place which is probably Britain's worst rioting this century? Location of the Toxteth riots, mass unemployment, and the place where Malik's story begins. So I've grown up with this sort of dilemma of not necessarily understanding my own identity. A junkie walking through the twilight I'm on my way home My father had gone into hospital having had a stroke when I was eight years old and became a quadriplegic and spent the rest of his life as a geriatric on, on a hospital ward visiting only at weekends. And subsequently, a year later, at the age of nine, I was taken into local authority care. And as a result of that, I was raised by white people. I was devoid of any educational or academic opportunities and found myself homeless at the age of uh, 17, um, having been thrust out of the care system onto the streets of Toxteth and being left to my own devices. Well, first of all, of course, there's unemployment. 47% of black youths and 43% of youths. In 1984, I was, you know, 18 years old, homeless, destitute, and, you know, with no sense of any cultural identity. And this is when Malik met Gil Scott Heron, the legendary poet, musician, and as we discovered last time, descendant of a Scottish slave owner in Jamaica. So I met Gil Scott Heron in 1984 at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool when he came to perform a show. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gil Scott Heron. My accomplices offers from And I'd been encouraged by my brother to go and see him because my brother felt I was off the rails. He was right. Having met him that night, we became great friends. And it was Gil who encouraged me to 
use poetry as a means to develop literacy. And then um, once I'd become literate, I started then to uh, read, you know, black history and, and listen to black music and started to understand a bit about black heritage. With Gil Scott Heron's encouragement, Malik went to university, got a master's and became a poet. That moment at the gig in 1984 began a chain of events which would lead to where Malik is today, studying a PhD at Cambridge. But it was one night in front of the TV in 2003 which changed everything. This convoluted sense of identity that I've had, which I've been trying to reconcile within myself, really um, came into its own and was triggered uh, when I watched the BBC documentary. In 1881, Scotland beat England by six goals to one. It remains England's heaviest home defeat. The Scottish captain that day was called Andrew Watson, and remarkably, he was black. 1881. 48 years after the abolition of slavery, Andrew Watson became the first black football player to play in an international. The first black international footballer in the world. Now, my father was Reginald Wilcox Watson. My grandfather was George Edward Watson. My name was Mark Watson. I converted to Islam in 1992 and changed my name to Malik al-Nasser. But prior to that, I was Watson. So this guy is a black British gentleman who's playing football, captaining the national side in the 1880s. And he's living the life of a black Victorian gentleman. So I was perplexed. There were illustrations of him in the athletics journals and pictures of him in the Scottish football annuals. And not only did he have the same family name as me and come from the same part of Demerara as my father came from, but he looked like me. This raised two questions for Malik. Were they related? And how could this man have been living this life of a gentleman in 19th century Britain? So when I started to look into my family history and build a family tree, there were some elements that I couldn't get beyond. And the only way to really find them was to go to Guyana and dig into the archives. In 2008, Malik decided to try to prove his relationship to Andrew Watson and flew to Guyana. What my father had said to me about Guyana was one day I'm going to take you back to the sugar cane. So I knew that my father had cooked cane and I knew that they had cane fields in Guyana. He used to tell me about how they used to carry a cutlass and how sometimes they would have to fight snakes because there'd be snakes in the cane fields. But that was really all I knew. For years, Guyana was known as British Guyana. And for decades, its economy was completely reliant on sugarcane production. These plantations were worked by enslaved people before abolition. I just want a little, just to remember. The first thing that hit me when I got off the plane was um, the humidity. A really clammy environment. You had um, tropical rainforest. I mean, it was jungle. And then suddenly carved out of the jungle were these huge plantations and everything, all the villages seem to be like off the coast road. So you're traveling from uh, Demerara through Essequibo into Babis. Malik traveled from village to village searching for Watsons with no luck. But then a contact he'd met along the way phoned to say they'd just met a woman who was a Watson. Malik got her address. And we got to the house 
and I climbed the stairs and as I climb the stairs, I see this 82-year-old black woman standing there. And behind her head is a photograph on the wall. And I took one look at the photograph and I said, that's my father. And she said, that's my father. That's my father. And I thought, oh my God, I've got a 80-odd-year-old sister. And then I said, Reginald Watson. This is black and white photograph. Yes. What you got so this do. is this is Reginald Watson. And at this point, my heart is pounding. And then I said, Reginald Wilcox Watson. And she said, No, that's my uncle Reg. This is Reginald Daniel William Watson, his half brother. Brother. Brother of Reginald Wilcox Watson. Yeah. So some kind of way, my grandfather had two sons, 10 years apart, both called Reg. He lived to 102? 101. It was a mixture of absolute shock and somehow relief because having been told for so long to go back to where I came from and not knowing where that was, I'm now at a point where I have a sense it was another piece, a massive missing piece of the puzzle, which had suddenly come to light. And I had no idea at that point what that was going to yield, but I was concerned to make sure that I took every opportunity to try and establish, if at all possible, a connection to Andrew Watson. This guy is like the world's first black footballer, the world's first black captain, the world's first black international at the very inception of football. You know, and when you juxtapose that against my own experiences in the 1970s, going to Liverpool matches and being hounded out of the stadium by the national front, now I've got a sort of something that can give me a sense of pride, a sense of dignity, that there's someone in my heritage, in my lineage, who is uh, significant, you know, and, and, and has done something profound and, and made a contribution to the thing that they all enjoy today, the, the, the beautiful game. But that was far from the end of the story. In that moment, Malik realised just how close he was to the history of slavery. I never thought it possible for me to actually get back to a slave. So who is Nanny Ben? The house Malik was standing in was on the Woodlands plantation a former slave plantation passed down to the Watson family today. Malik's newfound family told him Nanny Ben was his great-great-grandmother. Nanny Ben was a former enslaved woman who they said was married to Malik's white great-great-grandfather, a Scottish plantation overseer. Nanny Ben Watson. Yeah, she married to Watson. Someone who was at some point a slave at another point had agency and was married to a white man whose name she took and that was not unusual within this family because the same thing had happened with Andrew Watson himself the world's first black footballer son of a slave owner you know early 1800s Malik's great-great-grandfather William Watson moved from the Scottish Highlands out to Demerara to join the family business with his brother running slave sugar plantations and William Watson's brother was the father of the footballer, Andrew Watson. 
So, Malik had proven his connection to Andrew Watson. He was a cousin. But he'd also found that he was just a few generations from both an overseer on a slave plantation and an enslaved woman. There's no way we can know what their relationship was like. But we know these relationships happened. They weren't unique. Yes, I am descendant from slaves, but yes, I am also descendant of those slave owners, as were many others. But the small fact that he was descended from the Watson family was about to have much bigger implications. Andrew Watson, the footballer, his father, Peter Miller Watson, had entirely run the whole Demerara operation of the firm. He'd started to realise who the family were connected to, and that was about to lead him to some of the most powerful people in Britain. I went back and continued my search and started to uncover a whole plethora of high-profile individuals associated with the mercantile concerns that Andrew Watson's father was managing in Demerara. They had formed an entity, a business entity, which was based in Liverpool that became known as Sandbach Tinney & Co. He realised that the business interests here were so significant that families intermarried. A dynastical conglomerate that spanned shipping, slaves, sugar, rum... So his family tree could be traced on and on, through their accounts and their marriages and their children. Three business partners, all married to three sisters. And the family tree linked him to all of them. The third married Samuel Sandbach. Including the mayor of Liverpool, Samuel Sandbach. So he was the head of the city that was the mercantile capital of the entire British Empire. And a man called Sir John Gladstone. Sir John Gladstone MP, who had four plantations in Demerara, one of which had two and a half thousand slaves on it. Gladstone was one of the most powerful people in Liverpool at the time. And a name you can't forget, because his son, and Malik's distant relative was William Gladstone. His son was the Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone. The British Prime Minister who served four separate terms in the 19th century. When I discovered who all of these characters were and that I was related to Prime Minister William Gladstone and the Mayor of Liverpool, Samuel Sandbach, I came to understand that they were instrumental in building the city of Liverpool as we know it today. His family tree connected him to the architect of the city where he was born and to the heart of power in Britain. Toxteth is one of the oldest parts of Liverpool. Once a handsome suburb that housed the rich merchants of this maritime city, it subsequently went into rapid decline as they moved away to more spacious parts. So being told to go back to where you came from and then finding that I actually emanate from the family of people who were among the financiers and the architects of the very city itself. There was a, a, a dichotomy there. It was, it was, you know, it was a difficult dilemma to resolve. 1821, 12 years before the abolition of slavery, Malik had found that his ancestors had so much power and control over Liverpool. They were influential in every level of British political and economic life and had developed many of the plantations of Demerara. Capitalising to such an extent that their greed knew no bounds. But things were about to change. Despite all that power and influence, just over a decade later, slavery was abolished. This is where Malik's personal history is going to lead us to someone else. Because there were other people in Liverpool at that time who also had wealth. 
and power. I run a business whose name is James Cropper. My father is called James Cropper. And my son is called James Cropper. I am surrounded by James Croppers. <laughs> Mark Cropper's five times great-grandfather was a man called James Cropper, a merchant, a Quaker and an abolitionist. The, the, the family ate off this tableware that each piece had a, a slave in chains on it. I've also got another piece, and this one says on it, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. And that message, imagine just that message kind of in front of you. And the collision between James Cropper and those in Malik's family tree helped shape where Mark is today. The Croppers and the Gladstones um, dealt with each other on a very regular basis. They were both very significant merchanting families in Liverpool. You know, they, they were kind of cheek by jowl. They were not distant. Everyone, the whole economy was benefiting from the slave trade. You know, they made fortunes. But Cropper had begun to campaign very publicly against slavery and was now pumping a lot of his money and energy into ending it. I think it weighed deeply upon them. I think that's the point, that, that they recognised the issue and, and they spoke up about it. Over many months, Cropper and Sir John Gladstone wrote to each other in the Liverpool Mercury, going head to head. He started basically having like a kind of a verbal fight in the Liverpool newspapers. And in fact, in Guyana, they'd had this slave rebellion that had been very violently put down only the year before in 1823. 1823. 10,000 slaves across Demerara rose up. There were almost no casualties among the white plantation owners and overseers. The protest was largely non-violent, but the response to the uprising was not. Up to 250 slaves were killed as the British put down the rebellion. 27 were executed afterwards. The reports of just how brutally the British authorities had behaved travelled back to the UK and helped the abolitionists' cause. After that, James Cropper says, that perhaps he, meaning John Gladstone, may throw some light on the yet mysterious business of the Demerara insurrection, where there has been so great a loss of Negro life and so little of the whites. James Cropper's letters prompted a vicious response from Sir John Gladstone. It's outrageous, because what he does is he blames James Cropper for, the, for the, the, this loss, this waste of, of, of life in Demerara. He actually says that it, it's James Cropper's faults for spreading doctrines that created, and I'm going to quote this, such excitement, irritation and impatience in the minds of the slaves. I mean... <laughs> At the time of the uprising, Sir John Gladstone was the biggest slave owner in Britain and the rebellion had been started on his own plantation by two of the enslaved people he owned. It's so wrong. Forget British abolitionists or William Wilberforce. For people in Guyana today, it was the martyrs of the uprising who brought liberation. Eventually, with more and more rebellions across the colonies and growing awareness thanks to campaigns funded by people like James Cropper, the British government passed the Abolition of Slavery Act in 1833. 
But in order to get the bill through, the British government paid out £20 million to compensate British slave owners. You know, how unfair is that? That, that you know, the abused and aggrieved, the slaves, got nothing, while in fact those who had exploited them were paid out. So John Gladstone's son, future Prime Minister William Gladstone, was pivotal in arguing for those payments to be made in Parliament. So John Gladstone ended up with the largest payment of any individual in the British Empire. When it came through all the accounting in the, in the late 1830s, the biggest slave owner in the whole of the British Empire, he was awarded £105,000 in 1837, which is an absolutely phenomenal amount worth about 10.2 million pounds today. And naturally, when he died, much of that money was inherited by William Gladstone himself. The debt the British government incurred was still being paid off in 2015, which means you and I were still paying that debt through our taxes. But for the abolitionists, they felt they had managed the impossible. Slavery had been abolished. He basically wrote that actually it was a price worth paying. They got abolition through. Whatever it cost, it was worth it. It seems incredibly distasteful that there was this compensation, but it would never have happened without it. And the Cropper family? James Cropper continued working with Sir John Gladstone. In fact, after the abolition of slavery, they ended up being you know, both significant investors in railways together. They were, they were directors on, on the boards of some of the new railway companies. 1845. James Cropper's son used the money from the sale of the railway to buy a paper mill. The same paper mill which Mark Cropper runs to this day, employing 600 people in the Lake District. You know, it was bought with money that was made from the sale of shares in the Liverpool Manchester Railway. And that money in the Liverpool Manchester Railway was in turn made out of the merchant house. And the merchant house in turn made money out of trading that was in part linked to the produce of the slave trade. You could make these chains, these links in probably almost every single bit of British economic life. There's a link somewhere trying to directly link the slave trade and what happened back then and the lives and prosperity of people alive today. No, that, that, makes me, that, that does make me feel really uncomfortable. James Cropper became the figurehead of the family, everything they stand for. If something is wrong, you know, call it out. But that's not the whole story. 2019. 200 years after family hero James Cropper started campaigning for abolition, Mark Cropper made a shock discovery that there was another side to his ancestry. I had found this painting that belonged to the family that I thought might be a Gainsborough. And the BBC, they made a um, Fake or Fortune programme about it. In this episode, can we prove this is a lost work by one of the biggest names in British art, Thomas Gainsborough? Our investigation takes us on a thrilling journey back through time. It's fate, by the way. (laughs) 
in the course of that, we were, I was trying to work out where this picture came from. And my father mentioned to me that this distant ancestor called George Hibbert had, had a famous picture collection. But here we suddenly found this name, George Hibbert. And the extraordinary thing about George Hibbert is he's exactly the same generation. You know, he is my fifth great-grandfather. So is James Cropper. George Hibbert was once one of the most influential and wealthy slave owners in Britain. He was a member of parliament, and he was the head of a transatlantic family that had built its fortune managing and then owning estates in Jamaica. So, you know, when I first found out about George Hibbert, even when you find out there's some connection, you know, unless you actually go right, you know, almost take yourself mentally and physically, you know, out to a plantation in Jamaica and understand what went on. It's only then you realise just how horrible it was. It makes your eyes open wide. You think, you know, oh my God. This was, this was a huge thing. The fact that these people were property, they weren't viewed as human. The fact that he really had blood on his hands. You know, you don't read that in any biography. Actually, it's, um, I don't know how, it's hard to say how I feel about it. I feel, I think, you know, I, well, I certainly feel something. When you actually really think that you've got both these strands in you, distance as it is, it, it, you, you know, it's, it's, you do feel a bit emotional about it. But I tell you what, only if you really, really stop and think. And I think that is the big problem in this debate, is that most people haven't got the time or the understanding to stop and think. So, two men, Malik and Mark, connected by their relationships to the two biggest slave owners in Britain 200 years ago, both grappling with the complexity of their heritage today. I think another chilling bit of evidence about Hibbert is that him and his family were paid something like £103,000 when slavery was eventually abolished. If I'm right, I think that is number two in the whole of the British Empire to John Gladstone and his family. (laughs) It's really screwed up, you know. Meanwhile, the University of Liverpool's confirmed it will rename Gladstone Hall. The halls of residence were named after former Prime Minister William Gladstone, whose father was a slave owner in the West Indies. And that's the other point about Britain and Britishness and and our whole nation and our culture. You know, it's so integrated that that this wealth that came from slavery and the slave trade created some of our most beautiful houses and landscapes and some of our greatest institutions. You know, it's, it's everywhere. Never mind the buildings and institutions. Look at the living evidence. I have met other people who share the same surname as me. Next time on Descendants, Marlon. I met somebody in school who had this uh, surname Hibbert. We were in the same year, same classes. 
one of the many hibbets of Caribbean descent in Britain today. The idea of that was pretty devastating because, because even if we share the same name, are we actually related? And I don't know. Hi, I'm Glenn Patterson and I'm here to tell you about my new Radio 4 podcast, The Northern Bank Job. It was the biggest bank robbery in British and Irish history and one of the most daring, carried out in the middle of a busy city centre at one of the busiest times of the year. With missing millions, burning banknotes and precision planning, it has all the elements of a Hollywood heist movie, but this actually happened and its consequences could not have been more far-reaching. I'll be telling the story of the robbery through the words of the people who were caught up in it and those who dealt with its chaotic aftermath. Just subscribe to The Northern Bank Job on BBC Sounds.